Welcome to the Celebration Church Tri-Cities Podcast. We are so grateful that you have chosen to spend part of your day with us. We are praying that God speaks to you through this message from our pastor, Robert Russell. For more information about our church, visit cctri.org. Enjoy the message. Lord Jesus, we do invite you here this morning that you would speak to each and every one of our hearts, that where there is brokenness, you would bring healing, that you would show us that you have plans and purposes for us each and every day, that despite our brokenness, you work through us to your glory. We pray against any spirit of darkness that would try to confuse Just pray for your spirit of truth, not only in this room, but with the children and other classes and services taking place, that your Holy Spirit would rule and reign here today. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you happen to be a guest or you've been away for a year, maybe, and uh, we've been in a series about brokenness here just recently. And we've been talking about the idea that there is a good type of brokenness and then a type of brokenness that needs to be healed and renewed and restored. And Psalm 51 is really the basis of this entire series where it says that the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. That the brokenness whereby a person is humble and surrendered to the Lord is a good type of brokenness. It's where your will is broken to a certain extent and you have submitted to the authority of God and he is working through you in a good way. But then we've also talked about the fact that there's a lot of brokenness that comes our way as a consequence of our own choices, our own sinful actions. Some brokenness is because of the sin of other people against us. Some of it's just the the fact that we live in a sinful fallen world. It's not somebody's direct sin or a direct action. It's just part of the things we deal with in this world that it too is broken. But the Lord, I believe, is always a healer, always restoring, redeeming, renewing. And he's doing so in special ways in all of our lives. That he is making you anew every day. The scripture says our bodies are wasting away, and that is true. But our spirits, our souls are being renewed day by day. He's doing something afresh to make us more like Christ, to make us into his image. And so what we've done here in this series is talk about different aspects of brokenness. And we began last week talking about some of the key people in scripture who themselves are broken. In fact, Every person in scripture, everything recorded about their life indicates that they were all broken. In fact, one of the things we need to understand and accept is that every person in this room is broken in some way. That we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all experienced the effects of living in a sinful world that there is brokenness in all of our lives. Some people here, though, have gone through extreme brokenness. They've gone through hurt and agony beyond what others have comprehended. Some are in it right at this very moment. 
And yet those who've been through deep, dark valleys and have trusted him can testify that even in those, he is faithful. He is good. He takes you through the darkest valley, restores you, transforms you in the inner being so that you see life differently, and he does something good. Now, last week we were talking about Abram, who became known as Abraham later after he's renamed. And the scripture says early on that God made a covenant with him. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. It's very important. He said to him, go and leave the country that you knew, your father's household, go to a land that I will show you, which was partly because he was going to show him to walk by faith. He says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and your descendants will be as numerous as the sands of the seashore, the stars of the sky. And he said, I will bless you and those who bless you will likewise be blessed, but those who curse you will be cursed. And so the scripture records that Abraham did as God told him. And so here he is, the great patriarch of Israel. And if you are a Christian, you are grafted into the line of Israel, that you are effectively a spiritual descendant of Abraham. Now, we talked about him because was it something about Abraham that made him special, that he's over and above the average human being and he's super in some way that God chose him? Or was it because God sovereignly chose to do something through a man despite his flaws? And the answer is the latter. Now, this is part of the mystery of human life that you and I always deal with. That is that God is sovereignly in charge of all things. He created all things. He holds all things together. He determined when you would be born. He's given the parameters of your life. He's given you gifts and talents that, that bless you but also limit you. But within those confines, he's given you and I the capacity to make choices. That we have control over our will. And those choices are real. They have ramifications for this life and for eternity. So somehow this mystery of God's in charge of all things and he sovereignly works all things simultaneously interacts with you and I make, making choices that matter. So Abraham was sovereignly chosen by God, but Abraham acted in faith. The scripture says his faith was credited to him as righteousness. And so there's something about him where he surrendered to what God wanted while God is acting to do something that only God could do. So he made him this patriarch, the one through whom there would be the covenant that you and I are blessed through. But we looked last week about the fact that Abraham was a flawed man. For example, when there was a famine and he took his family down into Egypt, he lied about his wife. The scripture says that he thought of her as being beautiful and he was afraid that the Egyptians would kill him and take her. So he told her to lie that he was her sister and that way she would essentially protect him. And we looked at it and thought, well, first of all, he's having her lie. He's lying. And instead of protecting his own family, he's putting his wife out front, so to speak, and making her the protector. And what he did here that was the flaw in his character was that he did not trust God in this scenario. He had faith for great things, but in this situation where he felt threatened, that he schemed to try to protect himself. And what it reveals about him was that he was a fallen man. 
And the scripture records that he did this not once, but twice. In another setting, he did the same thing to protect his own hide. So part of his brokenness was his own sinfulness. Now, probably every person in this room could make a list. It would be a grievous one, a difficult one of the choices and sinful decisions in your life that led to your own brokenness. And see, it's that place where the glory of the majesty of Christ really works. Because we have a tendency to look at others and say, wow, their life really looks good and they surely didn't make the mistakes I made and and they've been on a much better course, but you don't know what they've been through. And see, the really the glory of Christ is the extent and perfection of his forgiveness. It's not just that he excuses your sin or sometimes sets it aside. It's that he completely covers it, washes it away, redeems you, renews you, treats you as if you had never sinned. That you are a new creation in him. And see, it's the glory of Christ. It's the answer to human life. People are searching all over the world for answers and trying to fill the void in their life. The answer is to, is to be found in the personal relationship with Christ who forgives you, redeems you, and uses you in spite of your fallen brokenness. And that's exactly what he did with Abraham. And then we find also that there was brokenness in his life that came because of the fact that he did not have a descendant. That he had received this promise that he was going to be the father of many nations, but he didn't even have a son. And of course, his wife was old and she didn't think she could bear a child. And they made the mistake of thinking that they would have to do what really only God could do. And so his wife, Sarah, gave to Abram, her maidservant, Hagar, and he had a child by Hagar, who is the child that we know as Ishmael, who is the father of the nation of Islam, essentially. And there's been enmity between those two families since that time all the way to today. The mistake they made was what? Trying to run ahead of God, orchestrate things in their own strength, their own power to do what really only God could do. And the strong warning from this is for every one of us because I've made this mistake and I'm sure most, if not every person here has done the same thing. Believing that God wanted to do something in our life, that it was a good thing, but ran ahead of him and tried to orchestrate it ourselves. You will never regret waiting upon God. You will regret running ahead of him. And rarely does he work in the time frame that we desire. In other words, we want to fulfill the promise, so to speak, now rather than waiting for his time, his perfect time. So that's what they did. And surely you see there was some brokenness in their lives thinking we're never going to have an heir. And that's part of what we talked about last week, the unfulfilled dreams that have been part of your life. All of us have them, do we not? That we had idealistic perspectives about what life was going to be when we were much younger. And hasn't it played out very differently? 
with more challenges, more trials, more difficulties than you would have ever imagined. And surely there are times when we wonder, God, why do you allow it to be so difficult? And yet somehow we have to come back to the place of he knows what he's doing. That he is making us into the likeness of his son. And it's through those challenges and trials and difficulties that it takes place. But of course, they ran ahead of God in this case and, and had the child. But then eventually, God blessed them anyway. He gave them the son of the promise, the son of laughter, Isaac, that they would in fact have this child in their very advanced years because God was saying, look, I'm doing it. It couldn't have happened unless it was God. And the point I made last week is that sometimes God makes us wait much longer than we want to wait so that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt it was him who did it. Because if everything happened in the time frame that we wanted, it might be our hand that accomplished it. But when it's in his time frame, you know that there was no possible way except for him. Now, I really believe this, that God wants us to rest in the brokenness that causes us to be humble and surrendered before him, but that he wants to heal the brokenness that has hindered your life, inhibited your life, made you think that you could never be something, or maybe because of things in your past, you, you think that God could never bless me or he could never do good things in my life. The example of scripture is that he does wonderful things and brings blessings despite our failures. And I wanna continue talking about that this week and just jumping ahead to Abraham's grandson and talk about Jacob because there's a lot of fallenness in his life, and yet he's a person of extraordinary importance, not only in scripture, but in all of history. In fact, Jacob, who's gonna be renamed Israel, in many respects is one of the most important people in all of history. But he too has his sinful flaws. And so there is a lot of scripture about him in Genesis. I'm only going to pick out a few of them and start here with where the Lord spoke to his mother, Rebecca, while she was still pregnant with the child. Now, let me stop there for a moment and say that I think there are a lot of important things that go on in the life of a child while that child is still in the womb that a mother who is caring for and blessing the child while still in the womb is protecting that child spiritually and setting them up for good things. But there's some children who experience rejection right from the moment they are conceived, that they are never wanted and there's a spirit of rejection that gains a stronghold in their life. There's some who are born addicted, things of that nature, that literally in the womb, there are difficulties starting. And it is so important that we protect and pray for and bless children even in the womb. And so here the Lord is speaking to Rebecca and says there are two nations in your womb. She's got twins. 
that they'll be separated from each other. One will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. Now we're gonna dive into that story. It's Jacob and Esau. Esau is the oldest. Jacob is born just seconds after him because he's holding the heel of his brother. He's apparently trying to get out right from the start ahead of him, but can't do so. And so there are two nations here all the descendants that will come from them. If you think about that, if the Lord chooses to tarry for a thousand years, and if you have a child, there may be a great nation that comes from you in terms of descendants. And that's what God is saying. And as we look at their two lives, we find that they're very, very different. The scripture says that Esau became a skillful hunter as he grew up. He was a man of the open country. He was an an outdoorsman. He probably fished too, but it doesn't say that in scripture. But, you know, he's a a tough guy. He probably drove a a Ford F-150 that had camo color, right? Although I got to tell you about a friend of mine. He he is a tough guy. He owns his own business. He's got a tough character about him. He's always driven a nice Ford F-150 every time I've seen him. And a few years ago, we were on vacation and I got into his truck and I saw a litter box sitting in the floorboard of the back seat. I mean, a tough guy in an F-150 with a kitty litter box in his back seat. Well, it turned out his wife wanted to bring the cat on vacation and he's got a very soft spot for either the cat or his wife or both. But I hope his other hunting and fishing buddies didn't find out there was a kitty litter box in the, in the back seat. And then there's Jacob. It says he's a quiet man. He liked to stay at home. And undoubtedly, what type of car would Jacob have driven? Can you guess? It's a Prius, of course. Either that or a smart car. You know, the little smart cars. You know what those are? Those are Priuses that were washed and left in the dryer too long. That's what a smart car is. So Esau had an F-150, but Jacob had a Prius. And it says that Esau had a taste, of Isaac, that is his dad, had a taste for wild game. And he loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And right from this very moment, there is a problem. That the dad favored one son and the mom favored the other. Now we need to stop there for a moment because there's something very important here. That for all parents, unless you are very intentional and very on guard, you will favor one child over the other's. You have to be very intentional about not doing so. Sometimes it happens without even you realizing it. Like it happened here, maybe it's because you have a child who's similar to you, they like your interest, you're always spending time with them, and then you have a child who's very different. That their gifts and personality you don't really understand and you just let them do their own thing and somebody else spends time with them and you don't. And whether you realize it or not, you're favoring one over the other. So like the dad who is a hunter and fisher, fisherman and then he's got a daughter who likes to dance and sing and doesn't know how to relate to that. 
But you know, I have a friend who's a smart guy. He likes to hunt and fish, but he signed up for dance classes with his daughter. That was pretty smart. And now she's a young adult, and he has a very healthy relationship with her. She might have been a little different in terms of her interests, but he said, instead of just favoring one, I'm going to learn how to love her as well. Now, this thing about favoritism, though, is something that can creep in without you even realizing it. In fact, I think my wife and I were very intentional and purposeful about trying not to show favoritism to one child over the other, but there are circumstances of life that sometimes almost push you in that direction. And then one time, I had one of my kids say something after they were, say, a young adult, that surprised me, that indicated that he thought we had favored one of the other children over him on a certain issue. And up until he said that, I would have never thought so. But once he said it, I thought, wow, that's a valid insight. In other words, it was totally unintentional. I wasn't aware of it. But once he said it, I thought, hmm, there is some validity to that. And I was intentional thereafter to make up for it. Now, you know, there's something interesting, too, about this thing of favoritism. It's not only parents toward their children. Sometimes it's grandparents with the grandchildren. So if you're a grandparent or a great-grandparent, and there is an issue of, you've got many of them out there, are you intentional about not showing favoritism? And again, there's circumstances of life that might push you in one direction or the other. Maybe you've got a couple grandchildren that live next door and a couple that live in another state. Well, it's obviously harder to spend time with the others, but you have to be intentional in that way. And then I think there's another type of favoritism that we have to be careful about that you may not have recognized. And that is where the children play favorites with their parents. Not so much when you're kids, because you don't necessarily recognize and intentionally do it, but I'm talking about when life begins to flip. You know, it's said that you're twice a child, in other words, when you're born and you need somebody else to take care of you, but when you get older and you need somebody else to take care of you. And sometimes as life progresses, children favor one parent over the other in the later stages of their lives. It is something you must be careful about. Now, maybe it's because one of your parents is just a whole lot easier to deal with than the other. In fact, I told you this a few years ago. I asked my oldest son, I said, between your mother and I, which one's the most difficult to deal with? He hesitated to answer. Eventually he said, well, you are. I said, correct. I was preparing him for the advanced years when I intend to be the more difficult one. Hoping he will enjoy it. 
But you know, if one of your parents is much more difficult and you have a responsibility to honor them throughout all of life, it could be that you have to be more intentional not to favor the easier one. One of my older, one of my other kids, I told them my retirement plan is to move in with you to make up for the teen years. And I'm serious. Just saying. He happens to be here today. But this thing of favoritism is important. In any family relationship, don't favor just the easy ones. God calls you to love unconditionally even the difficult ones, even if it's me. But in this case, we know that Jacob and Esau, well, they had parents that were making mistakes. And then we learn about Jacob that he is one who is going to be a usurper, which means to try to take the place of or to supplant. His very name, Jacob, means the supplanter or to supplant. And what he wants is the birthright that his older brother has. Now, in Old Testament times, to have the birthright being the firstborn meant that you got a double portion of inheritance. Whatever was divided up among the kids, the firstborn got twice as much. Of course, I believe that's because we make twice as many mistakes with our firstborn and they deserve it. But then they also got the senior position in the family that the firstborn would take greater authority, be alongside the dead, making decisions, and then as dead got older, they would become the leader of the family. And Esau was one who had this by birth, but Jacob wanted it. And undoubtedly, he'd been scheming for any methodology to acquire it. And then there happened to this unusual circumstance where Esau had been out hunting, he came in, he was famished, and Jacob was making some stew Esau wanted it badly, and then Jacob quickly slid one in on him and said, but first, give me your birthright. Now, really, if Esau had been a person who was thinking and had any wisdom or any perspective about the world that was long-term, he would have said, forget that. But we find that what he did said, well, all right, sure. He swore an oath to give up his birthright. Now, this is important from two standpoints. First of all, Jacob has schemed to get this position. It does not mean that God ordained that he would scheme to get it or that he would be sinful and lying and so forth and manipulating to get it. It simply means that God saw what would happen. When God first said to Rebekah, the older will serve the younger, it simply means that God saw what would happen. Now, I want to mention something to you about understanding this too because Oftentimes you'll hear people say, well, God looks down through history and he sees what you will do. And then based on your choices, then he makes decisions about what he's going to do. I don't think it's that way at all. In fact, C.S. Lewis, who is a great thinker and writer of the 20th century, and many of you have read his books like the Chronicles of Narnia or Mere Christianity or The Abolition of Man, which by the way, would be a good book to read right now, The Abolition of Man, because basically he's he talked about in the middle 1900s what's going on right now that by 
doing away with the concept of morality and truth and that you make important decisions, you are, you are abolishing the important character of what it means to be human. The important character of what it means to be human is that you make real moral choices because you are the image of God. Animals operate on instinct. They just do what they do by nature. But you can reason and make moral choices. You are in the image of God. And Lewis was writing about the abolition of man saying that taking away the concept of truth and morality is abolishing the very nature of humanity. But anyway, Lewis had another insight that I wanted to bring up and it was this. He said, you and I think about time in a linear way. That is, what happened in the past, what's happening now, what's happening in the future. It's like in a line. God doesn't think like that or act like that because A, he's outside of time and he sees it all simultaneously. Like he doesn't have to look at it in a linear way. He sees it all simultaneously. So when he said the older will serve the younger, it's not like he looked in the future, then made a decision. He just saw what is. It's, it's the reason that he could speak to, to the apostle John and give him the book of Revelation. Because from our standpoint, the book of Revelation has not yet come to pass, been fulfilled. But from God's standpoint, he's seen it all already. And he could say to John, here it is. And if you've been reading, let us say you had read the book of Revelation once every century for the last 2,000 years. Well, a thousand years ago, how difficult would it have been to comprehend the book of Revelation? How difficult to comprehend it coming to pass, to see it actually occur? It seemed like impossible. You read the book of Revelation today and you go, oh, it could come to pass very, very, very quickly. It is declaring to us that Christ is coming soon, that you and I live in the last days. And you see, God saw it all throughout history. He's known it. Well, likewise with Esau and Jacob, he saw what would happen with them and he's just declaring this is what it is. That Jacob is the usurper. Now then, we find out something else about him though. That eventually, he wants to have the birthright and the blessing in a certain way. His father is getting old and they think he's going to die, although he does, he does have some time left. He doesn't see well and he apparently doesn't hear very well. And Jacob goes to get the blessing of his father. Now in the, in the days of this time period, the blessing was very important that the father would bestow a blessing upon the descendants to literally lay hands upon them and pray for them and, and bestow a blessing. Now, we don't think of that so much in formal ways today, but you realize there are some fathers who are greatly bestowing blessings upon their children, and there's some fathers who are doing a terrible job, some fathers who are even bestowing curses upon their children. In other words, if you have a loving father who day by day encourages you and blesses you and lets you know that they care about you and tries to provide for you and, and help you with life and make sure that life goes well for you as best possible, then that person is blessing you day by day by day by day. But if you had a father who deserted you, 
or abused you or rejected you or condemned you, they've done just the opposite. And let me say this, dads, it is important that you intentionally be a blessing to your children. Some of you might think, I really blew it with my own children. Well, if you're still alive and they are, it's time for you to reverse that in whatever way you can. To bestow a blessing upon them, even if it's much later in life. And you see, to be intentional about it. We make the mistake in our culture of thinking you bless your children with financial things. That's the primary way. Well, you might help them a little bit in that way, but that's not the primary way you bless them. You bless them with your words, with your life, with your time. My own dad never accomplished great things in this life. In the eyes of the world, he wouldn't have gotten any great awards or anything of that nature. But the one thing that did characterize his life, and my wife and I both came to this same conclusion after he died, the one thing to summarize his life was, well, he loved people. He had time for people. Did I receive a blessing from him? Yes. Did he fail in some ways? Yes. But I knew I was loved. And that's our job to pass on that blessing. Now in this case, Jacob's gonna scheme to make sure he gets it. And his, his mom is in on it. She has him dress in a, in a fake outerwear that makes him appear like Esau, even smell like Esau. Goes in and lies to his dad and says, I'm your firstborn Esau, when in fact it's Jacob, to get his father to bless him to assure that he gets this birthright. So he's deceived his own father. But then we find this. Later, Jacob encounters Rachel, who is his uncle, that is Rebecca, his mother. Her brother is Laban. His uncle's daughter is Rachel. She's beautiful and he wants to marry her. And of course, you know the story, he worked seven years and so forth. Then there's a feast, a wedding day. And it says that that evening, that instead of Rachel coming to be with Jacob, that Laban sent Leah, the oldest daughter, not the one that Jacob was working to marry. Now, you got to ask the question, how was it that Jacob spent the night with Leah and didn't know that he had the wrong woman? Well, A, it is evening and, you know, they don't have electricity, so we'll, we'll give him credit for that side. But B, she probably came in a veil. They probably had a wedding feast all day. The scripture does not say this, but there's a good chance he was drunk. That would probably be the most reasonable explanation. And then they woke up the next morning, as humans often do after drinking, and think, what have I done? And finds out that he has made a wedding covenant with Leah rather than Rachel. And he's mad about it. He goes to his uncle and says, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel and you have deceived me. 
Now, what Laban should have said is, just doing what I saw you do. In other words, here's a person who has spent his life as a deceiver, a usurper, and now the same thing has happened to him and he's mad about it. Now, it is true that Laban deceived him. He then said, okay, you, you make a commitment to work seven more years and I'll go ahead and give you Rachel after you finish your wedding week with Leah. So he gets two wives. Now, the scripture is not promoting polygamy. The scripture is quite clear about the two shall become one in the Old Testament and like an elder should be the husband of but one wife, not five at the same time. And so there is this promotion of unity, but in the Old Testament is clear about the foibles of human beings and there was this problem of multiple wives. It always led to trouble because in the case of Rachel and Leah, what was the problem? There was this enmity between the two sisters. Now, Leah was the one who was richly blessed with having many children. Rachel couldn't even have children until later. She had the son, Joseph. And after they both thought that they couldn't have children anymore, he had some children by the maidservants. He had 12 sons, which then eventually became what? The 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, the descendants of Jacob, his sons would be the tribes of Israel that we look to today, that we are, if you are, born of literally Jewish descent, you're from one of those tribes. Most people don't know which one anymore. Maybe some of the Orthodox Jews can still track it. But the fact is that God is using this man and his lying and deceiving and even the deception of others to still accomplish something extraordinary. Now there is something to be seen here though about the fact that he's indignant with Laban and that is, we tend to be upset or indignant with others who commit the same sin we've committed. I've seen this through time. There's some truth in this. In other words, if you've had a problem with lying through your life, you tend to be more upset when people lie to you. That's your big issue. Wherever you have tended to sin in some way, you tend to be more aggravated when others sin in that way against you. Maybe it's because you are more aware of the depth of it and you recognize the, how wicked it really is or something of that nature. Maybe it's because you haven't accepted forgiveness and repented yourself, so you have a very, sort of you're tightly wound in that area that you're easily angered. Maybe it's because you have guilt and shame over it and when somebody else does it to you, your anger comes out, but really a lot of your anger has to do with yourself. But whatever the case, it is a truth. And sometimes if you're really angry with somebody else, maybe the first thing you need to do is look in the mirror and ask the question, why? What is it in my soul that has really set me off? I've mentioned this before, but it's worth mentioning again. When I've counseled people over the years, sometimes I'll counsel someone and they, they, they got a problem with anger about an issue. And on a scale of one to 10, something that should make them a little bit mad, say make them a one or two in anger, makes them a 10. They just blow up. 
And if you go quickly from being mildly angered to enraged, there's something else going on in your soul besides that situation. In fact, the longer I've walked with Christ, the less angry I am. You know, a lot of things that used to make me angry years ago, just, eh, it's not that big a deal. Now, there's some things we should get angry about, and our anger should cause us to act righteously. Like, if you saw a child abused, you should intervene. It should cause you to act righteously. But there are a lot of things, probably 90-some percent of the things we get angry about, we probably shouldn't get angry. It probably reflects more about what's going on in our soul than the real situation. But here's Jacob. He's been a little angry, but he reaped what he sowed. Now, there's another aspect of Jacob, though, and I'm jumping through. As I mentioned, there's a lot about him. It says that eventually he had this experience of wrestling with God. Now, we don't know exactly. Did he wrestle with an angel of God or wrestle with God himself? Sometimes as you read that scripture, you think it's one than the other. It's not quite sure. Maybe it was both says that he wrestled until daybreak and eventually that he was overpowered and touched in the socket so that there was something that was a permanent damage to his hip, that it was wrenched. But in this process, his name was changed. No longer would he be Jacob, but he would be Israel. The name Israel means one who has struggled with God or wrestled with God and overcome. Now, of course, any human being who struggled with God is going to lose. I mean, by definition, you lose. But it's saying something more than a physical struggle. Because the fact is, you struggle with God. Whenever you rebel against him a little bit, or you resist his will, or you sin against him, you are wrestling with God. And he allows it, he permits it, But what happens here is that God wrenches his hip, which I think is physically true, but I think it's also a metaphor that God broke him. That he came to a place of brokenness before God. That he had a broken and contrite heart, finally. That the deceiver who had his brokenness due to his own sin is now himself broken which is going to make him usable, pliable for God's purposes. I think this whole wrestling match is about him coming to a place of repenting, having a broken and contrite heart so that God could use him to establish the nation of Israel. Now, of course, we know he made some other mistakes. For example, what did he do? He passed on what his parents had taught him. He favored his son, Joseph. He had other brokenness in his life because his wife, Rachel, died after childbirth. The one he loved so much eventually died. He had his own struggles, his own issues, but yet God used him anyway. He made him a great nation, He said from him would come a community of nations, not just one. He said, I'll give you the land that he had promised to Abraham, the land that his descendants occupy today. 
which could have only happened by the sovereign hand of God. If you look at how Israel was reformed as a nation, it seemed impossible. If you looked at that, that part of the world and say the year 1899, the Ottoman Empire controlled that region and, and it was under Muslim control essentially, but because of the consequence of World War I, Britain took control of that area. There was what was called the Balfour Declaration that came out of Britain to create a homeland for the Jews that didn't happen immediately, but what was the consequence of the Holocaust of World War II was that the nations, the important nations that had power at the time, the United States and Britain primarily, carved out the nation and formed it, not by the work of man, but by the sovereign hand of God. I mean, if you really study that and look at all the things that had to happen for Israel to become a nation, it was impossible. In fact, even this, if you know a little bit about American history, you know, FDR was, Roosevelt was the president during World War II. But he died shortly before the end of the war. And Harry Truman became president, who was a very reluctant president. But what many people do not know was that FDR was opposed to the Balfour Declaration, but Truman was a, a, a friend of the Jews and favored it. And I would dare say that it was the hand of God who said, I'm going to put this man in as president because he's going to be the absolute key to reforming the nation of Israel. I mean, that, that's the way it happened. If it hadn't been for Truman having a different perspective, it probably would not have happened, at least from a human standpoint. God would have still done it. That God blessed Abraham, he blessed Jacob, and his promise is true to today. Now think about that. Here's a sinful fallen man. Despite his brokenness, God used him. You and I have no excuse. Yes, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have brokenness in our life. All of us have shame in our life over things that have happened. All of us are wounded in some way, but God uses broken people to his glory. I'm convinced that God wants to bring healing to every person of brokenness that's brought upon you by the sin of this world, but he wants to redeem it to use you for his purposes as long as you are alive. I believe God brings blessings to broken people. That he, he raises up what only he could do. That he restores in ways that only he could. Those of you who know that you did not deserve the blessing of God because of your own sinful actions but you trusted him anyway and walked with him, is it not true that he has been faithful to you and blessed you far beyond what you deserved? That is certainly true in my life. That he blesses and redeems broken people. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are one who restores. And despite our failures, our sins, that you're doing good things, things that may last for generations far beyond the time that we're in this world, things that are good.
Lord, we give you praise and we give you thanks. I do pray if there's any person here who does not know Christ, that all this seems foolishness to you. Well, the scripture says that it is foolishness to the carnal mind, to the person who does not know him. But when you humble yourself and you're broken and surrendered before him and you say, Lord Jesus, forgive me my sin, come into my life, make me a new person. He fills you with his spirit, he redeems you, he begins to recreate you, renew your mind, and give you understanding that it's not foolishness, it's the answer to human life. To know him and walk with him. If that's you, invite him in today. Amen. We hope that you enjoyed this podcast and that it blessed you in some way. Don't forget to visit our website at cctri.org and make sure that you send us your prayer requests at office at cctri.org. We pray that the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. 